everyone. Good morning, buenos, good morning. Good morning, buenos dias. Buenos dias. Thank you so much. Buenos dias. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Marzak. I'm the uh, director of the Latin America Economic Growth Initiative here at the Atlantic Council's Adrian Arst Latin America Center. And I'm thrilled to welcome you to today's important discussion, which is part of our series on U.S.-Mexico relations at this critical moment. It's also the launch of our Latin America strategy paper. Uh, we have many distinguished uh, guests in the room today. Thank you, all the ambassadors who are here today, Ambassador Ponte and others. Uh, and a very special welcome to Adrian Arst as well. Uh, Adrian is the, the founder and inspiration behind the Adrian Arst Latin America Center. The, uh, the vision of Adrian is why we're all in this room right now together today. So we can, we can thank you, Adrian, for, for your, your leadership. Uh, and also welcome to all of us joining via, via webcast and following along on Twitter. Uh, you can feel free to get out your phones during this conversation, um, but only to tweet uh, about this conversation. And if you're doing so, please use the hashtags ACLADAM or AC Scowcroft and using, or sorry, those are the handles. The handles AC Latin, AC Scowcroft, so try to get this, and the hashtag AC Strategy. What an honor today to be joined by Margarita Zavala, uh, the leading contender for the presidency of Mexico in next year's election, and also Michael Chertoff, the former uh, US Secretary of Homeland Security and founder of the Chertoff Group, as well as Ambassador uh, Thomas Pickering. The incredible crowd here, the standing room crowd, I think is testament to not only the importance of the issue, but to the three of you and, and, and your, your leadership and, your, and, and, the, and the incredible uh, uh, vision that you have and the, and the words that people are, are looking forward to hearing. Uh, Ambassador Pickering, Pickering will give opening remarks and then my colleague and uh, partner in crime, Peter Schechter, will then captain a conversation today with Ms. Zavala and Secretary Chertoff. But first, before we go any further, I'd like to first take a moment and frame what's happening with Mexico today in a, in a larger regional context. It's a tall order, but Peter and I, with the contribution of Rachel DeLevi-Ori, uh, have sought to do just that with a publication that we're also launching today, which is aptly named Beyond the Headlines, a, US, a strategy for US engagement with Latin America and the Trump era. Now, this is part of the Atlantic Council strategy paper series, which has released regional and thematic papers, uh, upwards of 10 regional and thematic papers, that offer guidance around some of the gr uh, greatest foreign policy challenges of our time. Uh, not only uh, Latin America, of course, uh, but everything from Iran to Africa to cyberspace. And I'd like to thank Dr. Alexander Merchev, uh, Fred Kemp, and Barry Pavel, who are the leaders and executive editors of the Atlantic Council strategy paper series for their vision on this project. Now we have copies of our paper uh, outside this morning, hot off the press, and although I don't want to spoil it for all of you are planning going back to your offices, canceling your meetings, and reading the paper immediately after this event, I do want to just give a quick overview uh, for those that might not have the time to do so today. Um, this is all of our paper is all about how do we maximize the opportunities and minimize the challenges for the U.S. as we look to Latin America. And I think in doing that, we first need to take a step back. U.S. relations with Latin America have historically been quite turbulent, but we need we, we need our Latin American partners. But we have 
throughout much of our history really taken Latin America for granted. And only recently have relations reached a new point of partnership. But what we have witnessed in recent weeks is that President Trump will frankly approach the relationship with Latin America with the same conviction to disrupt as he does with many other policies. And the region is taking notice with its own reaction. We have to be prepared for that reaction from the region. Still, as this administration moves forward on critical issues of foreign policy, we believe that a US approach to Latin America exists that creates a mutually beneficial win-win outcome for both countries and the region and in the context of the administration's approach toward foreign policy. Underline that as a belief that Latin America is today a formidable global player and a key strategic partner to the United States. It is a region of opportunity, not one we believe dominated by threats. Recon recognizing Latin America's transformation and the emergence, we have outlined key, four key pillars through which we believe the United States administration and Congress can engage the region. These include first, unleashing the US private sector. Second, collaborating in the fight against uh, organized crime and impunity. Third, seizing on the value of regional integration. And fourth, embracing Latin America's global emergence to work with the region and a host of issues of mutual concern around the world. Now, building on these four, building on these four strategic pillars, we have then provided ideas on how to work in an engaging fashion with specific countries in the region, specifically Mexico, but also Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, the three Northern Triangle countries, Cuba, and Argentina. We look at this paper as, as a blueprint, and we invite others to take ideas from it and run with it as if your own. We, plagiarism copying of our paper, we, we encourage. Please feel free to take our ideas, make them your ideas, and run with it, because we believe it gives a lot of fodder moving forward. So in the interest of time, I'm going to leave it at this high-level overview of our four your approach to engagement with the region. But again, I encourage you to read more. It's a short 35 pages. Uh, and the papers, again, are available right outside here. But before passing the mic, I'd like to dig just for one moment into one crucial country that we discuss in our strategy report, which I'm sure will come as no surprise to all of you, and that's Mexico. Mexico is a longtime partner of the United States that came under fire in the campaign and continues to bear the brunt of the new administration's desire to remake existing relationships. Following last month's visit by Secretaries Tillerson and Kelly to Mexico, we were all left wondering what might happen next between the United States and our important partner to the South. And the rest of Latin America as well is closely watching what happens with the US and Mexico. There is no doubt Mexico has been our side over the past few decades, especially so since the 1990s. Our ties have propelled exports across the United States, created millions of US jobs, and kept our country safer through intelligence sharing and border cooperation. In a world of chaos, the strong working, with, working relationship with Mexico has been critical to making sure that US security starts far away from our actual southern border. Our economic and business relationship is strong. $1.5 billion crosses the Rio Grande every single day. A number I'm sure all of you have heard more than once these days. With jobs from Iowa to Michigan dependent on our trade with Mexico. But these positive realities have unfortunately received very little attention these days. In fact, Mexico is now being made out to be a danger to the United States, and that is, detriment and that is detrimental to Americans as well as detrimental to Mexicans at the same time. 
We cannot risk the long-term consequences of fracturing our relationship with one of our closest allies. Our speakers today will talk much more in depth about what has happened and what's to come. But first, in helping to paint the larger regional over overview, it's hard to get a more insightful speaker than Ambassador Thomas Pickering, uh, somebody who is working with uh, our center on a number of things from our Columbia Task Force to our Northern Triangle Task Force. Ambassador Pickering is a fountain of knowledge on all things foreign policy. He has served for more than four decades as a US diplomat. diplomat. He is a renowned voice on US foreign policy, having served as Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, as well as countless ambassadorships, to the, from the United, including the United Nations, uh, the Russian Federation, India, Israel, Jordan, El Salvador, Nigeria, and Ambassador Pickering. I might even be met, missing a few. Ambassador Pickering, welcome. It's a great honor to have you. We look forward to your comments. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Adrian Arsht. Um, Washington is a funny town, and I'm in this invidious position of <clears throat> looking at what I used to call the curse of the Congress. Everything's been said, but not everybody has said it yet. So I'm going to be very short today because I think Jason has given you a wonderful introduction to where we are and how we're looking at things. I have three or four very simple points to make to you. Latin America is always under dealt with by the United States, and we have a new opportunity to further open the doors to the hemisphere uh, and the hemisphere to us. Secondly, it's an extremely important set of partnerships from Mexico to Argentina in terms of trade and investment, of shared interest in democracy, of common cooperation in many areas. It is a region that I think is perhaps today more open to us and to where we're going than we have seen for some time. Uh, but all comparisons are, of course, invidious. Uh, we have problems in the region, and we cannot skirt over those. And I think the report does an excellent job at looking at both the problems and the opportunities in the region. One only has to mention Venezuela uh, as perhaps first in line in the problem relationship. But one can look at countries like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, not without problems for us, but also providing us with great opportunities. And it is in that direction that I think we want to look this morning. Uh, the report says much, Jason has said much, and our panel coming up will say a great deal about Mexico in the United States. It is an honor and a pleasure for us to have here Margarita Zavala, uh, a key contender uh, for the presidency of her country uh, in the year ahead, and someone who knows much and will tell us much about her country uh, and the uh, enormous, and I think committed, since she feels uh, to Mexico and through that, I hope, Margarita, to the U.S.-Mexican relationship. And we're very pleased and delighted to have uh, Secretary Michael Chertoff, whose work and interest and indeed association uh, with Mexico, the border, and the trenchant problems that we have seen and had together is an important contribution uh, to this morning's discussion. I'll just say one more simple word, el muro. It struck me always as a solution in search of a problem. 
And it may be that migration with the cooperation of Mexico is better solved without concrete, but with human dimensions foremost. Uh, at the moment, the statistics show us that the wall is better designed to keep Mexicans in America, which is the general flow outward, than the alternative. And we need to look at that. Uh, if the wall will help in the illegal export of firearms, then maybe it will serve a purpose. But I hasten to say that service may be better served by actions not relating to concrete and, mor and mortar, but let's debate the subject. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Peter Schechter, who is going to take the floor next to run the panel. Peter runs the Adrian R. Center. And thank you, Adrian R. Center, for gathering us together and making Latin America so important in the work of the Atlantic Council and what goes on here in Washington. Ambassador Pickering, thank you for those very, very kind words. Good morning, everybody. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at the Atlantic Council. I'm also the director of the Adrian Arsh Latin America Center. And a word to Adrian again to thank you for making all of this possible. There's over uh, 200 people in this room today. It's an important cross-section of the administration, of Congress, think tanks, press, the private sector. Your presence here is proof of the depth of appreciation for but also the concern with our relation with Mexico. We at the Atlantic Council believe that a strong US-Mexican alliance is the key to stability, security, and prosperity, not only on, along the border, but in, for our country here in the United States. Since the presidential campaign, a rift has developed between the United States and Mexico, and the rift is widening. The wall, immigration, detentions, the threats to NAFTA are forcing Mexicans everywhere to ask themselves the unimaginable question, which is, did we Mexicans make a mistake 25 years ago by betting our future on NAFTA? We saw massive marches last weekend in the, in, against the United States. The leftist candidate, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, is rising in national polls. Mexico's Congress is considering bills to limit the purchase of US agricultural products and force the purchase of Argentine and Brazilian corn, wheat, and, uh, and, and soy. This is so unfortunate because over the past 25 years, the US-Mexican relationship has grown and flourished. US-Mexico US and Mexico cooperate in one of the most efficient borders in the world. We, beyond the border, US national security interests are benefited by increased cooperation in intelligence sharing, <laughs> anti-narcotics enforcement, maritime security, and of course, all the work that Mexico does on its southern border to stem the flow of Central American migrants to the United States. Needless to say, as Jason as mentioned, as Ambassador Pickering has, has added, NAFTA supports 14 million jobs here in the United States. So before the rift goes further, 
It is now more important than ever that we have a frank and open conversation about how decisions are made by leaders in the United States and Mexico and how those decisions are going to impact the economy, the security, and the prosperity of our two countries. I would just point to an opening salvo in that frank discussion that Margarita Zavala has penned in today's Washington Post. Next year, Mexico will elect a new president. What happens between the United States and Mexico is undoubtedly going to affect the political campaign. The political quicksands are going to be very tricky. That is why we're so lucky to have you, Margarita, here today, along with Secretary Chertoff, to talk about the future of this crucial partnership. Margarita Zavala is a leading contender for the presidency of Mexico, a member of the National Action Party, the PAN. She served as First Lady of Mexico alongside former President Felipe Calderón from 2006 to 2012. She was previously a federal deputy where she was the sub-coordinator of social policy of the PAN parliamentary group. Michael Chertoff is the founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group and a senior counsel at Covington and Burling. He served as the U.S. Secretary of Homeland Security under President George Bush from 2005 to 2009, where he led and strengthened crucial aspects of border security. Few people know the U.S.-Mexican relations as closely as Secretary Chertoff. Before heading the Department of Homeland Security, Secretary Chertoff was appointed as the Assistant Attorney General of the United States for the Criminal Division. It's an immense pleasure to have both of you here today. And I've asked both of you privately, and I'm going to ask you publicly, that the more you f make me fade out of this discussion, the happier I'm going to be. I, um, I'd love to just let you have a dialogue. So I'm just going to kick it off. We're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about security. We're going to talk about trade. And perhaps we'll have time to also talk about the broader diplomatic context of this uh, of the, and geostrategic uh, issue of this, of this rift between our countries. I want to leave also time for questions at the end. Margarita, I, I'd love for you, you've just come from, from Mexico, I'd love you to describe a little bit what's the mood of your country. When one travels to Mexico these days, there's little other in the news other than President Trump. Um, describe to us what is the feeling today there? What's, how is, what are the repercussions of this earthquake? What are policymakers, what are companies saying, and what are people saying on the streets? And what are your fears and hopes for what is happening uh, between Mexico and the United States. You all have um, um, interpreters' uh, headphones. Margarita will speak in, in Spanish. Spanish okay. Welcome again. Thank Perdón. Gracias. Gracias por la invitación. Gracias a todos y cada uno de ustedes por estar aquí. Si no consideráramos importante la relación entre Estados Unidos y México, este salón no estaría lleno. Y desde luego por la gente que representa mucho aquí en Estados Unidos y mucho para México. Y su presencia se las agradezco mucho y muchísimas gracias, secretario, por estar presente. Además, con el conocimiento que tiene usted y muchos de los que estoy viendo sobre nuestro país. Yo entré a la política a los 16 años y entré en los 80s. En uno, había pasado uno de los momentos más difíciles de la relación México-Estados Unidos con los temas centroamericanos y años después habría otro momento muy difícil que era en el caso 
del asesinato y de un agente de la DEA. Desde entonces no había sentido lo que ahora se siente en México, uno de los momentos más riesgosos de la situación entre México y Estados Unidos. Lo que pasa es, además, la relación se ha tensado y tiene que ver con mucho más materias o con muchos más temas que en aquella época. Está en, en riesgo temas no solo como la migración, sino también como las relaciones comerciales, las fronteras, la seguridad. ¿Qué es lo que se siente? Desde luego una tensión muy fuerte entre México y Estados Unidos, pero ¿cuáles son los riesgos? Por un lado hay un discurso de odio, que es de parte del presidente de Estados Unidos, desde la propia campaña, yo en el 2015 hice un artículo en el periódico que se llamaba Tomar en serio a Trump, porque los discursos de odio hay que tomarlos en serio por lo que generan. Y ahorita ese riesgo pues está en México. Antes, eh, cuando entré a la política, también había una animadversión a Estados Unidos. Por muchos años, el, el PRI, que era el partido que mandaba, autoritario, había puesto en la cultura una animadversión a Estados Unidos para echarle la culpa a alguien. Y le echábamos la culpa a quienes con, nos conquistaron y también a Estados Unidos. ¿Qué fue? Dos temas que diluyeron esa animadversión. Uno, el Tratado de Libre Comercio. Sin duda alguna, las relaciones comerciales. Las cosas empezaron a viajar. La gente empezó a viajar, no solo en términos de migración en sí misma, sino también consejos de administración, asociaciones, empresas que se combinaban con México. A tal grado, como lo decía en mi artículo, que hace unos meses tenían 23 millones de aficionados de la NFL viendo el partido Dallas-Pittsburgh. De ahí hasta el guacamole, el internet, las telecomunicaciones, Estados Unidos empieza a ser parte de México y México parte de Estados Unidos. Ahí va un momento en que la relación se empieza a fortalecer y la animadversión a Estados Unidos empieza a desaparecer. El otro es también algo fundamental que tenemos que estar conscientes de que está en riesgo, la democracia. Llegó la democracia a México, en la que luchamos muchos, y diluyó al enemigo, al enemigo imaginario. Porque la democracia obliga a pensar en uno mismo, a pensar en su propio país y a resolver las, los problemas que se tienen hacia adentro. Hoy está en riesgo eso. Hoy tiene que decidir también Estados Unidos que, cómo nos quiere tratar, si somos socios o aliados, y que nos trate así. Y igual, de igual manera, el riesgo también de empezarlos a tratar como enemigos y entonces echemos a perder 25 años de la relación. Esto es mucho más que un tuit, es mucho más que una sola persona, desde luego. Estamos apostándole también a las instituciones y yo haré todo lo posible también por tener una relación constructiva que nos convenga 
a todos, a la región, en todos los términos. Migración, seguridad, medio ambiente, trabajo, amistad. Muchas gracias, Muchas gracias, embajador. So, Mr. Secretary, let's talk about politics at home before we get into the... the I mean, the, the President Trump continues to make Mexico one of his main negative themes. Uh, he, while somewhat more oblique, he did it again in the speech that he did delivered to Congress just a few days ago. And there's so many stakeholders in this relationship. Governors and mayors, I've heard you speak uh, about how importantly, how important state governors and, 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 and states are along the border. But not only border states that, because lots of states have Mexico as the first or second export market. Uh, companies, U.S. companies have made major investments in Mexico. There's the whole national security apparatus from the CIA uh, to the DEA, which has intensified over the years its cooperation with Mexico. And there's so many cultural and historical ties. There is a sense in this country that those stakeholders aren't, we're not hearing them. Tell us a little bit about how, how we can, we can get them more heard, or is it possible to get them more heard? Well, first of all, let me uh, welcome Margarita. It's wonderful Thanks to have you here. And um, I, I enjoyed when I was in office working with President Calderon, who was a, a great friend of the United States. And also, thank you to Adrian for, for sponsoring this. Um, I had the you know, great opportunity, both at the Department of Justice and at the Department of Homeland Security, to work with my counterparts in Mexico, and they were really among our strongest allies and friends from a national security standpoint. Um, uh, we, we worked very closely, not just with respect to, to the border, but with respect to the issue of potential terrorists coming into the hemisphere. There was a lot of information sharing and a lot of cooperation on that. Um, the challenge is this. We are in a very strange time in the West. It's not limited to the United States. You see it in, in Europe as well. Uh, and part of that is the rise of xenophobia. And it's not just the question of what President Trump says about Mexicans. It's what's said about Muslims. It's what's said about all kinds of people from other parts of the world. And we see in Europe as well the rise of populism as a kind of xenophobic force. So this is clearly part of a larger trend. And I, I, I'm a little concerned we may see that in Mexico as well, both as a reaction to what's happening in the US, but as part of the broader trend. Um, the question is, how do, you, how do you challenge this? And I will say, when I got into office at Homeland Security, uh, the president, having been a governor of Texas and someone who was raised in Texas, had a very strong feeling about the importance of the relationship with Mexico, because he and many of the people he grew up with lived with Mexico as a trading partner, as a place where they had social relationships, where they visited, where people visited us. And if you go down to uh, border regions, not everybody has the same view, but you'll find a lot of people who really cherish this relationship. The question is, how do you get the message out? And you know, uh, part of this is really a matter for people who are expert in, in public affairs. But we are now living in a very challenging period where getting the facts and the truth out is by no means easy. And a lot of the argument now takes place in a plane in which you might say there's a fact-free zone. Uh, one of the things I, I think is important is to get more of the folks who are actually in the area dealing with Mexico, part of that ecosystem. Get them out there in the news media. Get them out there 
uh, on the social media. Let them explain to colleagues in other parts of the country and, and fellow citizens how important and how mutual this relationship is. And then it should not only just be Texas and Arizona and California and New Mexico, but those parts of the country, Iowa, which export um, uh, grain and corn to Mexico, uh, companies that are manufacturing that export um, products to Mexico and then get them back and there's a binary relationship. We need to get stories out there about that so there's a greater understanding of the fact that Mexico is not just our neighbor, but one of our closest allies and friends. Thank you. Margarita, I've, I've, I've heard you speak passionately and, I, and you, you, you mentioned it in your article today in the Washington Post about how you are concerned that this not only affects the government-to-government -government relationship, but also could potentially cascade into the relationship between people, and, and how uh, Mexico in many ways is the first line of defense on unauthorized migration or even on organized crime. H how do you see this rift also endangering sort of the relationship between people, and, and it's not only the, between the two presidents, but how does this relationship also cascade, and how is that going to affect our own security cooperation? Sí, es justamente lo que está en riesgo, más allá de las relaciones de amistad o no, que las deseo, sino también una serie de temas muy importantes. Primero, el tema del muro, como decía aquí el embajador, pues sí hay que señalarlo de, por, por lo que representa, por lo que simbólicamente representa. Que ya había una valla física, es cierto, de eso desde 1991 lo hay, pero atrás de este muro que ahorita se discute, hay un de telón de fondo, hay un discurso de odio, una xenofobia, un racismo, que, está, que, que le toca ahorita al país vecino, pero que luego le tocó a los musulmanes y luego toca en general al grupo que sea necesario. Y por eso es tan importante también que México sea claro en decir, bueno, el muro, por supuesto, no lo vamos a pagar y no sé quién quiera pagar algo tan inútil y caro. <risa> Ese es muy importante que lo neguemos todo y que señalemos lo que significa. ¿Qué es lo que se pone en riesgo? Aquí, eh, ¿cierto? Bueno, mi, el secretario sabe perfectamente los temas de seguridad que compartimos. Sí hay un riesgo que haya una amenaza, hay una amenaza que cuando se relaja la seguridad en la frontera que nosotros también como mexicanos cuidamos, si hay un riesgo para Estados Unidos, sí, sí lo hay. Sí lo hay y de hecho es una frontera en donde ningún, ninguna persona que haya cometido un acto terrorista en Estados Unidos pasó por la frontera de México y Estados Unidos. Así es que hay una fuerte relación ahí entre, entre México y Estados Unidos y las consecuencias de una seguridad de quién, de la región, no solo de Estados Unidos, de la región completa. Y eso lo tenemos que hacer caer en la cuenta, no sé si eso pueda traducirse, pero caer en la cuenta en Estados Unidos de que la relación va a tener, la buena o la mala relación tiene consecuencias ahí. Tiene consecuencias económicas, desde luego, como decía el secretario, en los, en los estados 
de California, Arizona, Nuevo México y Texas, que tienen, nosotros somos su principal país al que exportan, es decir, la economía depende mucho de ellos, depende mucho de nosotros, y al revés. Tiene que ver con otros estados que, cuya economía también depende de sus exportaciones de, de cereales. Más de 6 millones de empleos se crean a través de esa relación directa con, los, con empresas mexicanas. Tú mencionaste los 14 millones. Y, por ejemplo, 18 mil millones de dólares se gastan aquí al año por turistas mexicanos. Pues tiene consecuencias de seguridad, tiene consecuencias de, de economía y de relaciones comerciales. Y es cierto que requerimos de una estrategia clara para comunicar en un momento muy difícil donde la demagogia en la comunicación puede imperar. Pero eso no excluye al final que la inteligencia, que la razón bien planteada y estratégicamente puesta pueda ganar. Y esa es la apuesta que tenemos que hacer. ¿Qué significa? Primero, pues sí, las situaciones difíciles solo se vencen con valentía. ¿Y la valentía tiene que venir de la parte política? Sí, sin duda, quizá la más responsable, pero de la parte económica también, de los empresarios, del, del fondo de inversión, del de la universidad, del, del líder de la escuela, de la familia, en las organizaciones religiosas, sí tenemos que ser claro por todo lo que se pone en riesgo en nuestro país y en, Estado, y en Estados Unidos. Yeah. Well, I, I, let me just take, you know, three examples of things in which, you know, this cooperation has been so important for our security. Uh, and these are not necessarily well known or, or reported widely. But uh, when I was in office, and I think uh, uh, former Ambassador Medina Moore was then Attorney General, uh, we actually had a protocol between the U.S. Border Patrol and their Mexican counterparts that when there were issues where smugglers, for example, were... Uh, shooting across the border or undertaking some kind of threat to our border patrol, we coordinated very closely <clears throat> with Mexican counterparts to make sure that we were addressing that issue and removing the threat. So the cooperation back and forth, even across that border, was something that actually enhanced the safety and security of our border patrol as it did for, for uh, the Mexican authorities. Second thing, <clears throat> as was just said, and I can't underscore it enough, Uh, to my knowledge, we've not had a single case of a terrorist, uh, uh, a violent jihadi terrorist coming across the southern border. Um, and that is significantly due to, again, very close intelligence cooperation we have had with the Mexican authorities in terms of who is coming into Mexico, whether they, become, they be, uh, are trying to enter by air or trying to go through the southern border. And that's, again, an area we've cooperated because we recognize a lot of the migration into the U.S. actually doesn't come from Mexico. It comes through Mexico. And of course, the smuggling often comes through Mexico. And so we work together on that. <clears throat> Finally, in a, in a different plane, um, I remember after Hurricane Katrina, the Mexicans uh, were among the, the first to come forward with people to help with the restoration, with assistance to help with the restoration. Because like good neighbors, when they see 
you know, your house is on fire or your house is damaged, they come and help you stop the fire and rebuild the damage. So we have had this very close relationship, and I wish we could publicize it more. Unfortunately, good news stories tend not to get as much play as bad news stories. But again, I think this is part of communicating the, the richness of that relationship. Yeah, Margarita, I, I want, before we leave politics and talk a little bit about trade and NAFTA, <laughs> I, I want to press you on the presidential election. You're obviously a, a candidate, and uh, all of this rift is somehow feeding the, the candidacy of uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador. Um, how, could, could you describe to us how this, this connection happens? And we, what are the dangers that this rift continues and that we have a strengthened candidacy? And how will that affect your candidacy? I hate to be so directly talking about elections, but your elections is also important for us. Sí, lo entiendo perfecto y lo agradezco. No es un tema solo de nombres, es un tema de países y es un asunto que tiene que ver con futuras relaciones y con el futuro de todos. El planteamiento, desde luego, corre, tiene que ver con qué es lo que va a decidir México y en qué condiciones las está decidiendo. Por eso, en la medida en que fortalezcamos y ganemos la batalla entre las relaciones de Estados Unidos y México, eh, nos va, va a ayudar precisamente un discurso mucho más racional y sensato en México. ¿Qué es lo que sienten en lo que está pasando en México? Más allá y antes de que fueran las elecciones en Estados Unidos, antes de las elecciones de Trump, hay una enorme incertidumbre económica que tiene que ver con un problema de, de la ausencia de responsabilidad en las finanzas públicas. El segundo sentimiento es un enojo y una indignación muy fuerte por la corrupción y un miedo a la inseguridad que tiene que ver con la ausencia de Estado de Derecho. Esos tres sentimientos, que tienen sus razones muy claras en muchas de las cosas de finanzas públicas, de democracia, de honestidad, transparencia y Estado de Derecho, esos tres sentimientos, claro que se multiplicaron con la amenaza que representa un discurso de odio que terminé con unas buenas relaciones entre Estados Unidos y México. Y sí hay la idea de cambio, eso es clarísimo, pero lo que es importante es convencer que no podemos, ese cambio debe ser responsable, debe ser certero, debe ser el cambio precisamente hacia las políticas públicas ra razonadas y racionales, y, y lo que no puede ser es un salto al vacío de la demagogia. Y eso corre muchos peligros. Y porque además, este discurso de odio, de, de pronto parece que funciona. Y que funciona para convencer. Y de pronto funciona en Francia. Y funcionó para el Brexit. Y tenemos que ser mucho más astutos quienes apostamos a la racionalidad y a la responsabilidad en los cambios. Y ese es un reto para todos nosotros. Requiere mayor valentía, requiere mayor claridad, es cierto. Requiere mayor intervención, mucho más participación. Requiere que los jóvenes los podamos convencer para que decidan también. 
y en, en ese momento está México. Sí está decidiendo entre una vuelta al pasado, entre volver a hablar de enemigos imaginarios, que es precisamente nuestro país, pero tiene que ver con lo que está funcionando aquí. Y yo, digamos, yo veo Venezuela, ahorita que lo tocó el embajador Piquín. Venezuela, no hace muchos años, era el país más rico de América Latina. No hace muchos años, era una democracia ejemplar. Recibía refugiados de dictaduras de izquierda y de derecha, porque el barrio sur se complicó bastante en esa época. Y, y sin embargo, la gente no se dio cuenta del riesgo que significaba alguien como Hugo Chávez sin, sin la parte democrática, con un enorme autoritarismo, con un discurso de confrontación y polarización. Y además después de Chávez llegó Maduro, lo cual resulta peor. Es, Estados Unidos también tiene que ver eso. Y todos tenemos que ver eso. ¿Qué queremos de vecinos? ¿Cómo queremos ser los vecinos? ¿Qué queremos para la región? Y ahorita vuelvo, retomo lo que dijo el secretario. Los temas son mucho más allá, son desastres naturales, son seguridad en la región, es crimen organizado, es lavado de dinero, es que, cuál es la responsabilidad que vamos a tener todos ahí. Y sí, el 18, el 2018, que son las elecciones presidenciales, pueden estar más, están marcadas, lo están, con un enorme riesgo a la polarización, al odio, a la relajación de políticas públicas como la de seguridad, a la relajación de políticas de intercambio, y en esa perdemos todos. Y la otra, hay cosas que se van aprendiendo en la historia. La gente no cambia, y mucho menos con el poder. A mí, a mí díganme en la historia, uno, que haya hecho res, reversa de sus propios defectos. Me ha tocado estar cerca y ver el poder. Los defectos realmente se acrecientan. Las cualidades, si se tienen instrumentos humanos, espirituales, trascendentales, acompañados de una enorme pasión por la política en términos de servicio y de dignidad, también se acrecientan y se compensan las cosas. Pero si no, no. Entonces, no hay políticas, de, no hay conductas de reversa. No lo hay. A mí, díganme un dictador. Que, hay, que de repente hubiera cambiado. Y eso también tenemos que ser responsables en las tomas de decisiones y en las decisiones no solo a la hora del voto, sino cada frase, cada palabra, cada intervención, cada participación, cada vez que asistimos a algo, cada vez que aplaudimos. Y tener mucho cuidado, porque va nuestro futuro y el de muchas generaciones de por medio. Yeah, you know, I think there's a larger message, you know, beyond just what happens in Mexico with this, which is, again, as we've seen throughout the West, uh, you can't take for granted that, as, as someone once said, the arc of history is headed in the direction of democracy and freedom. It's not happening by itself. It requires engagement by people. And I think we've all had um, some surprising um, occurrences in the last few years that make us realize that you can't simply sit on your hands. You have to be engaged. I would also say, again, on the region, um, you know, it's not just we have to look, as, um, as we just said, beyond simply Mexico and the US. 
Uh, Venezuela has become uh, a, 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 not a very good story. On the positive side, Colombia. I remember when I was a young prosecutor, Colombia was viewed as the Wild West, and now it is a stable, prosperous, rule of law society. So there are positive things, too. I think both of our countries have to look to Central America. There are now very weak states, states where transnational criminal groups are very powerful. We see this with gangs. Uh, and we need to make sure that that is not becoming a problem for both of our countries. And again, this is an area where we need to be cultivating our friends. Last point I would say on an optimistic note, uh, my successor, the current secretary, John Kelly, was the head of Southcom. Uh, and that means he has a real understanding of the larger dimensions of the hemisphere and how that plays not only with our security but with our migration. So I'm hopeful that with uh, the people who actually are involved operationally <clears throat> in re representing the U.S. government that we can continue at least to build on an operational level on some very strong relationships. And then if we can kind of get the rhetoric toned down, maybe we can avoid doing uh, real damage. Well, let me, I was going to move to NAFTA, but you, you, brought, a, you brought up this larger dimension. And I think that what, let's jump right in there. And you talked about Colombia and some of the success there. Uh, in, in the paper that, that, uh, that Jason and I and Rachel rele released today, we talk about opportunities, but we also talk about the, some of the dangers of these rifts and other geopolitical uh, players who will certainly take advantage of these rifts. What, what are some of the biggest concerns you see there, particularly with how does China fill in a vacuum that <coughs> the U.S. Is, is leaving? I mean, already China is the largest uh, trading partner of a number of Latin American par uh, countries. Not with Mexico, sure. but does this, do you feel that this rift also opens a door to other political players? I, I think it does. I mean, I think that, you know, if you, if you are concerned about the U.S. economy growing, um, you, you have to recognize, if you have any kind of economic literacy, that exports are a big part of that. The Chinese recognize that. In Africa, they, they've really tried to insert themselves. The Russians are now trying to build an economic sphere around their country. The Chinese are building this, this new Silk Road and belt in Asia. I'm quite sure that both Russia and China would love to be welcomed into the Western Hemisphere and basically eat our economic lunch, as well as create a more uh, uh, somewhat closer potential security set of issues. So again, having strong relationships in our neighborhood are very important. One thing I would mention about Venezuela is, uh, I remember some years back, direct flights began between Iran and Caracas. And that is a security issue for the United States. And that brings into our hemisphere um, people that are uh, adversaries, to say the least, of, of America. On the other hand, when we've had cooperation, like with Mexico, um, that has made a huge difference. So I think from a, an economic and security standpoint, we should recognize we are not the only game in town. And if we back away, particularly in a, in a, in a hostile way, we're opening the door to our rivals. I don't know, Margarita, if you want to add something to that. I think that's something that certainly concerns many of us in the foreign policy establishment about how some of these rifts that are developing, let's take the Mexican one, how this, does it open up opportunities for other players, Russia, China, 
Middle Eastern players? Does, is that something that we in America should worry about? Well, primero, puedo, quiero hacer una referencia a lo de Centroamérica, que es, yo llevo 10 años en el tema de migración por un tema que trabajé de niños migrantes y obviamente este tema de niños migrantes no acompañados llevaba por fuerza a Centroamérica, Guatemala, Salvador y Honduras y desde luego la relación que con Centroamérica es muy importante para, para México, por supuesto, y para Estados Unidos. Desde el 2009 la migración de México a Estados Unidos es negativa, la tasa neta es negativa y en realidad el flujo migratorio viene precisamente de estos tres países, sobre todo estos tres países, en gran parte por el tema de violencia. Lo que quiere decir es que la clave no está en los muros, que se sepa, que separa a la gente y que aísla Estados Unidos, sino en las comunidades de, en las comunidades de origen. Ahí es donde hay que trabajar y donde el esfuerzo que hagamos con nuestros vecinos de Centroamérica repercutirá en una mayor seguridad para los países, para México, para Estados Unidos, pero sobre todo en evitar el dolor humano que hacen otros seres humanos. Ahora bien, ya la parte de, de lo que significa las relaciones comerciales, pues es un mundo económicamente global. El que se va, va a llenar, el espacio va a ser llenado por otros. Yo sé que esto no es precisamente of the record. No, no, es precisamente on, on the, the record. record. Entonces, bueno, <risa> digamos que reuniones internacionales como APEC, apenas pasó el, la toma de posición, la salida del TPP, la puesta en peligro el NAFTA, pues apareció a otro país presentándose muy a gusto. Esa es también parte de las relaciones económicas en el mundo. Llega China y va a hacer todo lo posible por ocupar los lugares que Estados Unidos deje de ocupar. Y no solo es un asunto económico, lo estamos viendo, es un asunto de seguridad, es un asunto de amistad entre los pueblos, es un asunto cultural también, de con quién queremos que se relacione nuestro vecino y con quién queremos fortalecer las relaciones y cuáles son los riesgos. Y por supuesto que Estados Unidos aislándose, que es un poco también la parte del muro que se decía, en realidad está aislando América eh, y habrá quien ocupe ese lugar y que se peleen exactamente por ocupar ese lugar, además muy cómodo al lado de Estados Unidos. Entonces sí se pone en riesgo y la visión tiene que ser mucho más amplia, mucho más de visión de Estado, mucho menos a la urgencia, a lo inmediato, no a la urgencia sino a lo inmediato, mucho más pensar en el futuro y en las relaciones que te queremos tener con nuestros países. Let me, Secretary, let me move to NAFTA um, and, and talk a little bit about that because I mean, we, we do have a profound economic integration between our two countries. And I have a whole bunch of questions on NAFTA. And, and I guess the first one is, um, is, is NAFTA fixable? I mean, the, 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 the question is, do we have to destroy NAFTA or is NAFTA, can NAFTA be updated and modernized as a lot of people are suggesting? The second question is, 
is NAFTA even possible? I mean, it's the, the president and some of the administrations seems to repeatedly believe in more bilateral relations than multilateral relations. And do you see the United States is attempting to exclude Mexico from a new bilateral relations with Canada? Do you think Canada will play ball with that? It's a lot of questions I'm throwing at you, but. So I, I preface it by saying I'm not, I, I'm not a trade lawyer or, or, you know, I did participate in the uh, uh, trilateral meetings with President Bush and, and his counterparts from Canada and Mexico. Um, but, but I would say this, um, you know, and again, I, I do think sometimes the rhetoric it, 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 that we hear from the White House exceeds the actual policy. Um, I think that the issue about multilateral arrangements probably is more directed at these large arrangements involving maybe a dozen countries where you have a lot of different moving parts. I mean, NAFTA, we're talking about three countries, uh, all neighbors. Um, is there room for updating and modernizing? I'm sure there is. I'm sure the Mexicans have some things and the Canadians as well that they'd like to adjust. Um, I don't think it'd be, it would be complicated to do that. And whether you sequence it by having some, some bilateral discussions and then ending with all three, I think is more a, a tactical question. Um, I can't tell you whether the Canadians would um, essentially you know, kind of try to go it alone. I suspect not because I suspect there's quite a bit of trade going, going that way as well. But you know, we're all in a very small area. It's very hard to live in an isolated way. And as, I, as we said earlier, if you look at those economies that are based either on the close proximity to the border or exports, they can't afford to have a major disruption. But again, it's going to require that the, that the members of Congress and the other stakeholders who have a, a real vested interest in having a viable, mutually beneficial NAFTA, they have to get out there and talk about it, and they have to be engaged on that. Margarita, you, you spoke on television, I think, a few weeks ago in Mexico, and you, you talked about trying to be creative with solutions for NAFTA and how do we move forward. Do you want to take this opportunity and talk a little bit about what are these, some of these creative solutions that you see in trying to move NAFTA forward into something that all three countries will be happy with? Primero, el tema de, de NAFTA, pues es un tratado que vino a, a generar una serie de relaciones entre los pueblos, además de la parte económica. Obviamente, hace más de 20 años, pues teníamos otros temas. Es cierto que hay una parte que en lo que México no está peleado, ni necesitamos ser expertos para decir, pues claro que hay cosas que se tienen que actualizar porque hay, vaya, el Telecán, se, el NAFTA se hizo y el Internet prácticamente no existía. Entonces, o las redes sociales, no había esa dimensión en la parte electrónica que ahora sí la hay. Telecomunicaciones, lo que tenemos ahora en términos de desarrollo de energías limpias, pues hay muchas cosas, pero que no requieren la destrucción de un tratado de libre comercio y mucho menos los riesgos de enviarlas a los senados correspondientes en medio de tales tensiones, ya ni les digo el nuestro todo lo que podía pasar. Imagínense que lo regresamos a los congresos y entonces en realidad paralizamos la relación comercial, la, la paralizaríamos totalmente. 
¿Qué es lo que hay? Primero, México sí tiene algunas cosas que ha utilizado cuando se ha sentido agraviado, ha ido a juicios, ha ganado juicios como el del tomate o el del atún, ha tenido medidas retalatorias, ha tenido de manera selectiva, ha, ha utilizado el propio tratado para defenderse de algunas cosas. Sí, que el Tratado de Libre Comercio tiene también sus mecanismos para negociar el mejor beneficio de las partes. En lo personal creo que, que México no debe salirse del Tratado de Libre Comercio. Esa es una opción que tiene que tomar Estados Unidos. ¿Quiere o no ser socio? ¿Quiere o no ser socio de Canadá? ¿Quiere o no ser socio de, de México? Y lo que tenga que ver con otro tipo de de actualizaciones que se hagan. Y no es la primera vez que se harían. Las reglas de origen han cambiado, han venido cambiando, son cosas que se podrían discutir y quizás algunas otras materias, pero no habría por qué terminar con el tratado en sí mismo. Ahora bien, con NAFTA o sin NAFTA, la comer el comercio entre México y Estados Unidos existe. Son... Realmente 1.5 millones de dólares que pasan diariamente en nuestras fronteras. No hay un par de países que tiene ese intercambio comercial en el mundo, México y Estados Unidos. Va a haber comercio. Lo hacemos en buenos términos, no lo hacemos en buenos términos, términos o nos sometemos a la OMC también. Ahora, los retos de México pues sí tiene que haber un esfuerzo por diversificar las exportaciones y por diversificar las importaciones. Porque la, lo que hace el Tratado de Libre Comercio es facilitar también muchas cosas. Bueno, nosotros tenemos Tratado de Libre Comercio, además de con Estados Unidos, con 44 países. Y el Estado mexicano ahí tiene un reto de fortalecer a su estructura empresarial de exportación a quienes importan y empezar a revisar cómo diversificamos ese tipo de mercados. No creo que tengamos que entrar en ello a fuerzas, pero el reto está ahí. Sí quiero decir que esta situación también nos obligó a México, pues primero a sentirnos parte clara de un pueblo tomando decisiones y al mismo tiempo nos obligó a voltear a ver a México y darnos cuenta de que los problemas nuestros lo resolveremos nosotros y no otros. Well, that, that's interesting. I just want to pick up on that last, uh -huh. uh, sí, on that last thing, which was, I mean, somebody has said to us uh, a few weeks ago that nothing has helped national unity in Mexico more than this <laughs> problem, more than the problem with the United States. Is that true? Sí, sí es cierto. Es cierto que las adversidades pues nos unen. Ahora ya adentro también somos claros en las diferencias, ¿no? Digamos, la unidad no es impunidad, la unidad no significa que dejemos un lado los problemas que tenemos, la unidad no significa que, que no estemos conscientes de la falta de Estado de derecho, que no nos demos cuenta de la enorme incertidumbre que hay, de la indignación que hay con el tema de corrupción, de la, del miedo que creciente que hay con el tema de seguridad. Eso, desde luego, es distinto y es importante señalarlo. Pero bueno, hay algo, hay algo de cierto 
Yo quisiera que no nos uniera en términos de confrontación con Estados Unidos, sino en términos de ideas, de pensamientos, que eso nos uniera a todos. Soy de las que, ahora sí que como decía John F. Kennedy, pues de los que creemos que se construyen puentes y no muros. Sí. Uh, I want to open the, the floor up to questions. Okay. Just like I have one real security question that I really want to ask you. You, you. you built a large part of the border that is there now. You, you told me <coughs> privately, and I hope I'm not telling a story, that you even welded a part of it. I did, yeah. Uh, um, and and what, other, what are the solutions to the wall issue? How, how can we enhance security at the border without creating a wall that is so offensive to Mexico and, and to Mexicans. So, so um, I think we have to acknowledge that it's a fair expectation on the part of American citizens that they will control who enters the country, whether it's at the airport or the land port or the, or the sea border. And ideally, in, in my view, and we try to do this under President Bush, we would have a, a series of welcoming bridges or doors that would be open. But, but again, it would be the US that would decide who to admit and who not to admit. Um, the way the border works um, in terms of topography is this. There are some parts of the border where the distance between the border and a city or a major highway is very short. When I went down to Yuma uh, early in my tenure, basically to get to Yuma from the border is a little less than a quarter of a mile. And literally you could see hundreds of people on the other side of the border. Um, and they would run across the border because there was no way the border patrol could intercept them. And then once they entered the city, it was impossible to locate anybody who'd come across illegally. So we built fencing there, and that stopped it. Basically, you, you went from hundreds a day to maybe two or three a day. Because getting over the wall or getting over the fence took enough time that with surveillance, uh, you know, video, radar, the Border Patrol could deploy and get there in time to intercept. And that actually had a deterrent effect. Now, that works at about 700 miles of the border. We've got about 650 miles of fencing. And by the way, you don't want a wall because you want to see through it, so you want a fence. Um, and then you have to make arrangements for gates when people want to, for example, if they're, you're by the river and they want to graze their cattle and have their cattle watered, they want to be able to go back and forth. But largely what you want in the border, other than that, is you want to have uh, various kinds of technology that alert you whether someone is trying to smuggle either people or contraband across the border. And as someone said, I think, earlier, uh, ideally also it works if people are trying to smuggle guns into Mexico because, to be fair, a lot of the crime problem and the violence problem there has come from American guns moving south into Mexico. So it, it's about having a mix of technology and infrastructure that it's not going to stop people from coming, but what it will do is it'll slow it up and give you an opportunity to, to intercept. Now, the ideal solution, which I used to argue for, was this. To the extent people from, whether it be Mexico or Latin America or elsewhere, want to do temporary work in the US, we ought to have a program that allows them to come in, they get a visa, they get identified, they come and go as they please, they can send remittances back. That's going to take the vast majority of people who are crossing and put them into a legal channel, a door or a bridge rather than a wall. Then you're going to have some people who want to do bad stuff, and they're smuggling drugs or, or other things. And that's where you want to focus your attention. And that's where this kind of 
of capability is really its most important use. So, you know, the, the sad thing is, um, I've been through maybe two decades now of iterations about how we might bring all of the solutions together to both deal with our labor needs in the US, but also to make security easier and more efficient. And everybody winds up with the same solution. It's a mix of having a legal channel for work and then devoting our resources to people who want to come in or go out for illegal purposes. And uh, the frustrating thing, to be honest, is um, if we could get by the rhetoric and just fix the problem, we could eliminate uh, this constant irritant. Sí, cuando yo vine me dijeron que cómo era posible que me tocara justamente con alguien que, que había visto lo de la valla. Y a mí realmente es alguien, además, que conozco su trabajo en relación con, con México. Sí, para México sí hemos estado en contra justamente de las divisiones físicas. No es lo mismo valla que muro. Pero es increíble dos cosas. Una, que en términos de... Para la modernidad que hoy tenemos en el siglo XXI, se haya optado por algo tan físico en, para dividir una frontera. Y alguien tan pragmático como parece ser Trump eh, haya optado por algo tan caro e inútil, que es el muro, que, sin, que simbólicamente es mucho más fuerte. ¿Cuál es el tema de fondo? Es el discurso de odio que hay atrás es el discurso de la xenofobia que va mucho más allá de una migración ordenada y lo que cada uno entienda por ordenada, y legal, y lo que cada uno entienda por legal. Y es importante que ese discurso no nos, no nos quite el reconocimiento de lo mucho que el pueblo de México ha aportado en términos del enriquecimiento y la riqueza de este país en términos históricos, en que no solo ha dado millones de mexicanos que viven aquí, de mexicoamericanos, trabajan honestamente para sacar adelante a sus familias, para hacer crecer también su propio país, que aman a Estados Unidos, que han hecho su vida aquí. Eso no lo podemos dejar a un lado. Y tenemos que quitar la palabra migración, tenemos que dejar de asociar la palabra migra migración con temas tan nocivos como droga, eh, crimen organizado y, te y terrorismo. No es ahí donde están los problemas. No es ahí en, en, en el odio al otro donde podemos resolver temas tan importantes, no solo para Estados Unidos, sino también para México. Y en eso, pues sí, algunas precisiones tenemos que hacer como país. Pero estoy convencida que podemos encontrarlo no solo a través de instituciones como el Ejecutivo, sino también en los congresos. Eh, a mí me tocó estar muy de cerca, porque yo fui diputada y por el tema de migración que he tenido en los últimos años, en el cambio, en la reforma a la ley de migración en México, la del 2011. Y tenía claramente reconocido el principio de reunificación familiar, el principio de interés superior del niño, se ampliaron mucho las visas, enormemente las visas, de tal manera que los guatemaltecos ya no necesitaban visa especial para entrar y trabajar. Y eso nos ha hecho más segura la frontera. Y tenemos que, por el bien de nuestros pueblos y nuestras relaciones, concentrarnos en los temas de seguridad y no creer que por 
poner un muro, vayamos a resolver un tema de seguridad. Al contrario, comprobado está en la historia que puede generar más violencia. There, there seems to be huge agreement amongst the two of you of the need for a legal lane. Yeah, and, and I, I really think this is important. I mean, I think that, you know, it was really distressing to hear uh, a suggestion that most or all migrants, even if they're coming across without authorization, are criminals. That's completely wrong. If you look at the people who are coming across to work, by and large, mm -hmm. what they're doing, they're coming to do hard work for generally low pay so they can send money home to their families. And when they're not working, they're going to church. So I'm saying to myself, what is, why, why do we not like this? These are the kind of people we want to have. Now, obviously, the rule of law is important. And when people you know, break the law, you can't ignore it. And there's got to be some remedy for that. But surely the character of the people who are coming by and large, you know, there's some exceptions. But there are exceptions for people born here, too. By and large, they're good people. And if we could focus on the problem people, whether they are, are born overseas or born here you know, down the street, then we could actually apply our resources more effectively. I've monopolized this conversation long enough. So I'll open it to questions. I will take a couple of questions at a time. I think that's more helpful to Margarita for the translation as well. So uh, let me begin with Paula Stern. Again, thank you very much for a, a really important um, uh, discussion that is filling what has been a vacuum so far in terms of uh, US uh, policy discussions. Um, we have not really even begun to think about the second and third order effects of the rhetoric that has come from um, our um, uh, uh, president. Um, my question's about energy, because energy has been such an important part of the exchange uh, between the US and Mexico, but really is not part of the NAFTA negotiations. Energy is basically um, really not been subject to trade rules um, as we know it within the uh, context of the World Trade Organization. But I understand that Mexico feels that energy should be um, uh, taken into any new discussion uh, bilaterally or trilaterally within uh, the NAFTA or separate. Uh, can you comment on that, please? I mean, there is a lonely hand that I've seen back there in the, in the corner that I would, that has been raised for a while, all the way back. Thank you, Josefina Urzais. The wall discussion is no longer rhetoric. There is an RFP out for it, so it's a fact. What do you reckon, Margarita, that Mexico has done wrong since the sign of NAFTA? And what would you do different if you were to become president? Let me take one more on this side. Um, this gentleman here. Hi, thank you. Uh, Rafael Bernal from The Hill. Um, you are running against a, uh, a populist, uh, nationalist, basically so, somebody who's the kind of person who's winning elections these days in, in the West, as Mr. Chertoff was saying. What, what is the strategy to effectively communicate sort of this more wonky, public policy-centered uh, campaign and, and actually win that? 
Okay, so three questions, one on energy. One is about what did Mexico do wrong to uh, get to the point of the wall and how, what will you do to change that? And the third question is how do you win against the populist if you're a wonky, a ver cómo se traduce wonky, um, serio, estudioso, if you're a studious, serious person who wants to engage in serious debate, how do you defeat a populist? Son, a ver, la parte de energía. Es cierto, es un tema que tiene que negociarse, es decir, la agenda bilateral entre México y Estados Unidos es, no es solo nafta y no solo es muro. El problema del muro es lo que acompaña a ese muro, que es un discurso eh, muy duro de, de, de desprecio. Y, y NAFTA, por supuesto, obliga a pensar que hay otras materias que tenemos que revisar. Una de ellas, sin duda, es la energética, de los 15 gasoductos que tienen, de los 11 centros eh, eléctricos que se tienen y que obligadamente tenemos que ir relacionando. Hay una comisión de energía bilateral que, hasta donde yo sé, este, puede ir funcionando bastante bien, que se conoce poco, pero que funciona bien, a lo mejor por eso funciona bien, y que en ese sentido, pues bueno, tienen que establecerse las la relaciones bilaterales entre los gobiernos. Y eso es cierto, no solo es nafta con los sectores que se tienen, sino también otro tipo de materias. Hay una enorme vocación en términos mexicanos de la energía limpia, y... Me parece que un secretario de Estado como Tillerson sabe muy bien de estos temas. Estuvo claramente, debe tener una buena experiencia en México de las rondas que se han realizado. Y por supuesto será parte, será parte de las negociaciones bilaterales entre México y Estados Unidos en una materia tan importante que es la energía y que tiene que ver con una reforma energética en México que se está apenas implementando en estos, en estos años. Eh. Josefina, es de, de, entre lo que me traducían y tú me traducías. Eh, sí, es cierto, lo del muro es verdad, todavía falta, sé que se está dando la licitación, todavía falta que Estados Unidos a la hora de la hora quiera gastar 20 mil millones de pesos en esa barbaridad, de, de dólares, perdón, 20 mil millones de dólares en ese tipo de cosas. Y, y bueno, todavía no es, ningún re, no es ninguna amenaza, ningún reto, sino todavía falta que se quiera, que se quiera ver ello, eh, eh, se quiera hacer. ¿Qué es lo que, en qué hemos fallado? Me cuesta mucho trabajo venir aquí y criticar así nada más, pero hemos fallado quizás en, en una estrategia sin duda alguna eficaz, para ir transformando la migración, para transformar las leyes migratorias. Por ejemplo, hay cosas que pudimos haber arreglado sin pedirlo todo. Te voy a poner un ejemplo que a mí me parece importante y que lo vas a entender muy bien si eres de origen latino o si eres mexicana. Los niños migrantes no acompañados para México y para la ACNUR 
son niños que no vienen con un adulto, que son niños que vienen con un hermano mayor, lo cual es muy común en México y en Centroamérica que los manden con un hermano mayor, con un tío, con una tía. Para Estados Unidos, si no vienes con el legal guardian, con el tutor legal, es un niño no acompañado y el que lo viene acompañando puede ser acusado de trata de personas. Y es solo un tema de interpretación. El de Estados Unidos no sabe que para nosotros ese es un niño acompañado. Que un niño de 12 años que viene con su hermano mayor de 19 es un niño acompañado. Que una niña que viene con su tía es una niña acompañada. Pero aquí inmediatamente los separan a la tía o el hermano lo mandan a la hielera y de ahí lo mandan a directamente, ya no a un albergue, sino directamente a la cárcel para hacerle un juicio de trata. De aquí a que se enteran que es la tía, que es el tío, que es el hermano mayor, etcétera, ¿no? Llega el consulado. Solo es un tema de ponernos de acuerdo y que sepan ellos que se tratan de niños acompañados. Hay un enorme sufrimiento absolutamente innecesario. De ahí la cantidad de veces que deportan a alguien porque no sabía que tenía que tener un papel. Tal es el caso quizá de Guadalupe García, una de las tantas de, de las razones que les dieron para deportarla, por decir un ejemplo muy reciente, pero que, la, que hay muchos ejemplos así, que ella no sabe que tiene que ir un cheque. Se salta uno y llega y la consideran que no, hay, no, no ha ido precisamente a lo que legalmente estaba obligada. Hay, un caso, hay muchos casos que dieron lugar a presidentes en la corte en donde un residente permanente, ya residente permanente, confiesa el delito y no sabe que por no ser ciudadano, porque nunca pide la nacionalidad, nunca pide ser ciudadano, que esa es razón para deportarlo y lo mandan directamente a México y habían pasado 32 años de haber estado aquí. Nunca hace su ciudadanía, porque aquí de hecho una enorme cantidad de migrantes latinos solo quieren vivir legalmente aquí, caminar legalmente, ir a los museos, ir por carretera, no por fuerza ser ciudadanos. Y quizá aquí entran en sospecha inmediata si no quieren ser ciudadanos. Y de ese tipo de cosas no las pedimos claramente y hubieran ahorrado muchos sufrimientos. Algunas cosas nos faltaron en términos de estrategia, es posible. En los últimos años sí me preocupó ver, si sí te dice algo que en cuatro años haya habido cuatro embajadores. Algo descuidamos y siete meses sin embajador, algo se nos pasó por ahí. Pero en términos de lo que sigue, hay muchas cosas que hemos aprendido y que tenemos también que aprender a ser una nación presentándose dignamente con nuestros vecinos, dignos con firmeza. Y la otra, hay poca relación entre empresarios entre empresarios mexicanos y de Estados Unidos, solo hay relación comercial, pero no hay de sectores, falta más 
política en ese sentido, de inter, en los intercambios comerciales. Pues decir, ahorita ya alguien me dice, no, no, pues bueno, nosotros sí estamos llevándonos muy bien con las empresas de allá, pues es posible, pero no hay esa visión de congresos binacional entre empresarios, de sectores que debimos haber apoyado como gobierno para ver cómo diversificaban sus exportaciones, para ver cómo diversificaban las importaciones. Ahorita el Estado tiene que decir... ¿Qué hago para que tú exportes a otro lugar? Necesito que baje impuestos, bajo los impuestos. Es decir, hay muchas cosas que, bueno, estamos... Voy, voy a interrumpir porque tenemos que acabar pronto. Sí. Quiero que contestes y quiero una, hacer ah. una ronda más. ¿Cómo se gana a un populista, pero en corto? Gracias, Rafael. Es... Primero, no lo gana una sola persona. Lo tiene que ganar la sociedad, el ambiente la responsabilidad de cada persona, la responsabilidad de quien aplaude el populismo, quien aplaude el odio, quien aplaude la demagogia, el que, la responsabilidad de quien hace relativo las, relativa las consecuencias de, una, de, de la demagogia y del populismo en la toma de decisiones. Yo voy a tener que ser muy clara, voy a tener que decir claramente lo que siento, lo que es, si sí, es necesario confrontarse, confronta y, no, y digamos que no es importante si vuelo bajo o arriba con decir la verdad y lo que se siente y lo que pienso y la visión. No, me, estoy segura que me será casi suficiente. Nunca subestimemos a un electorado. El electorado puede no, no se engaña, lo, es responsable y si demos los mensajes claros, podrá tomar las decisiones claras y en favor del futuro. Let me do one quick round of questions. Let's begin with you. If you could make them very brief, please. Uh, hi, I'm Jenny Leonard with Inside US Trade. I was wondering if you could comment on the sort of the Mexican officials that have been very vocal already about NAFTA and sort of the timeline, and it's unclear here because the U.S. doesn't really have its team in place, but in Mexico it seems like there are some red lines and also a timeline given your election of when you want those talks to conclude. So since they haven't started and the, the consultation process haven't, hasn't even started, do you think there is a chance at all that you would be able to do NAFTA talks before your election, which seems to be your red line. Great, thank you. Let me take one more lady over there. Thank you. Uh, Patricia Fagan, Georgetown University. Um, I'm, thank you, Margarita, for em emphasizing the importance of Central America, the Mexico-Central American relations, as also part of the process of U.S.-Mexico relations, part of the discourse, and especially the the Niños crossing the border. I, w I wonder if you could go a little bit further and talk about what might be happening on the southern border of Mexico that might change the equation that thus far has allowed people to cross through, and not only Central Americans, but also Haitians and Cubans and Africans and, and others, and the relation and whether the rumor or the threat that or, or the possibility that Mexico might not allow people to be deported back to Mexico if, as you already pointed out, they don't have documentation that they are Mexican. Thank you. 
Entonces, dos preguntas. Uno sobre el timeline, las fechas para las negociaciones de NAFTA, y la otra por el, sobre la frontera guatemalteca. And Mr. Secretary, I'd love for you to also answer about the southern border and what issues that brings up for the United States. But Margarita, why don't you go first? Las negociaciones del NAFTA se van a ir dando, no con la urgencia que a lo mejor se hubiera querido en México, porque en año y medio tenemos elecciones. Es difícil eh, ahorita medir cuánto va a influir ese posible cambio de gobierno, pero seguramente será una buena razón para que se vaya extendiendo la negociación del Tratado de Libre Comercio. Pero de cualquier modo, pues el comercio está ahí independientemente de la negociación o no. Sin duda, las decisiones políticas retrasan o aceleran las negociaciones. Me parece que va a irse posponiendo de algún modo este tipo de, de negociaciones. La, la importancia de Centroamérica y, digamos, ¿qué tenemos que ver con el sur? Que muchísimas gracias eh, por la pregunta. México tiene el enorme reto de no pedir en la frontera norte lo que no hace en la frontera sur. Y ese, ese estilo de congruencia en la política es muy importante en el país. No puede exigir, vaya, sí puede, pero no tiene autoridad moral para exigir un trato digno si no hay trato digno en la frontera sur. Y, eh, yo lo poco que he hecho he sido cuidadosa de tratar de ser congruente. Y, en ese, y sin duda ha influido para el tema, por ejemplo, de los haitianos en Baja California. El, lo que es importante y lo que tiene que hacer México es que estos problemas de frontera y de migración no son asuntos solo del Estado fronterizo, son asuntos del país. Los haitianos en Baja California no son un problema de Baja California, son un problema de México, un asunto que atender de, del Estado mexicano. Y independientemente de lo que todo tiene que ver con la facilidad y con estrategias jurídicas que se apliquen en el Estado de Derecho, pues sí se requiere de una humanización mayor del cuidado de las fronteras en términos eh, migratorios. Y, por supuesto, México a veces... Eh, en una negociación estará obligado a responder algunas veces en términos de políticas de espejo y de decisiones. Nosotros, a la hora de las repatriaciones, no pueden repatriar a todos por una frontera que no les toca. Es también casi no se vale. No se vale regresar a un niño que es de Nicaragua a través de Tijuana. No se puede hacer eso y yo, el país está en términos de humanidad y de decisión de Estado en reclamarlo. So, Secretary, let me give you the last word today about how the importance of what Mexico does on its southern border uh, really is also critically important for its northern border and, and well, our. Sure, and, I, and we, you know, we, we've, uh, as part of the, the, I think, the Merida Initiative, we worked with Mexico to help in, increase some of the capability in the southern border. It helps both countries, whether you're talking about human smuggling or, or drug smuggling or other contraband. 
Uh, again, it's an example of where working together really benefits both countries. And then on the last point, I, I was baffled by the suggestion that you could require um, like Nicaraguans to, to be sent back to Mexico. I couldn't figure out how they could think that's possibly legal. My, my recollection was uh, we had an expedited removal for Mexicans to go back to Mexico, but generally for people from other countries, they have to be taken back in their receiving country. And uh, you know that becomes an, a bilateral relationship issue with the receiving country. Well, I, I've gone a bit over my overstatement. Correct, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Thank you all for coming. It, this is a, clearly an issue of great importance. And thank you very much. Thank you. 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 Th